Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer and episode 213 of the Speaking Club podcast. All of us are going to be affected in some way by what's going on in the Ukraine and times are likely to get tougher. And that's why I wanted to start the show with these two quotes. The first is from Martin Luther King and the second is from cultural anthropologist Margaret Mead. It is not enough to say we must not wage war. It is necessary to love peace and sacrifice for it. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. I started this podcast for two reasons. Because I want to help people recognise the power of stories and humour in speaking and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organisations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So, if you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Hey, hey, how are you? It was International Women's Day this week, so I think it's fitting that this week's show features a woman who is a pioneer in an important aspect of international communication. My guest today is Shelley Pershon. Now, for 20 years, Shelley taught people from all over the world how to improve their English. Then she decided to turn the tables. And she now helps English speakers to adjust the way that they communicate so that people who didn't grow up with English as a mother tongue can understand them more easily. And Shelley herself learned the hard way how it feels to try and understand a foreign language because she moved to Spain in her 20s. Seven years after that, she moved back to the UK and taught refugees. And she began to notice that although her students could understand her, they were struggling to understand other English people. And it was at that point that she realised most native English speakers just didn't know how to adjust their speech for a person who wasn't fluent in English. So, in 2018, Shelley set up her company, English Unlocked, to tackle this problem. And in this episode, she's sharing some great tips for individuals and organisations so that you can make your message equally engaging for everyone you're speaking to, no matter how good their English is. Now, if you have international clients or colleagues, or if your English isn't your first language, you are going to love this episode. Rightio, let's switch over to the interview. Welcome to the Speaking Club, Shelley Pershon. Hello, thank you very much for having me. Oh, more than welcome. This is, I've uh, been looking forward to this. It's been a, been a while in the making. Uh, we talked about this some time ago and we finally got around to getting you on the show, which is, uh, which is really good. So today I'm thinking we might create some aha moments for people. But the first question I wanted to start off with is around your relationship with language. Have you always had a flair for language? No, not at all. Uh, when I was at school, I thought I, I thought I was terrible at learning languages. Um, my worst subject was French. I only just passed. 
Um, and then I moved to Spain and I hadn't studied Spanish at all. And it was then that I discovered that in a context like that, yes, I could learn a language and I learned it, I learned it quite well. Um, I just needed to be in that setting and not in a classroom setting. And this is something that I've noticed as well when I've been, because my background is English teaching. And I've taught English as a foreign language, both in Spain and also here in the UK. And I've really noticed a big difference in how quickly people learn. Um, when I was living in Spain, people learn very slowly, if at all. Whereas uh -huh. when I came back here and started teaching asylum seekers and refugees how to speak English, they learned English much more quickly. So let's rewind a little bit. Was that what you wanted to do when you were little? Tell me about how you got into the whole teaching and then teaching language. Completely by accident. Um, <laughs> so I was at university and the opportunity came up through a friend to work on a summer camp um, teaching English. So I did that for a couple of summers, but um, with very little expertise. Um, and then my friends Jess and Christian moved to Madrid and they said, hey, why don't you come out here? You'll easily find work um, because I trained to be a teacher, although I hadn't trained to be an English teacher. I trained to teach um, history and, and sociology, but they knew that I would easily find work. And so I moved to Spain, like I said, without speaking any Spanish um, and found work there as an English teacher. And that's when I had to start learning my own language. You know, I, yes, I could speak English. My instincts were good, but I had to learn how to explain my language choices. Why did I say will not going to in that sentence, um, which is, you know, a lot to learn. Yeah, so. absolutely. Yeah, I would hate to have to rewind and understand the mechanics of English language now. It would probably, we take so much for granted, don't we, in terms if we're native speakers. So when you got to Spain, how long did it take you to, I mean, you said it was easier in context. How long did it take you to assimilate and learn the language? And what were the sort of obstacles that you personally came across? Well, I think within a few months, I could have simple conversations. And within a couple of years, I was doing medical translations from Spanish to English, not the other way around. So Madrid, it's fairly... Yes high Spanish isn't it it's good Spanish that they speak there it's not like Catalan whereas there's the dialects was that that That's right. helped yes um of course the Catalans would say that you know Catalan is just as valid as as Castilian Spanish I think it would be much harder if I had moved to Barcelona which is a wonderful city you've you're exposed to Catalan and Castilian yeah. Spanish whereas yes you're quite right in Madrid is just Castilian that made things a little easier. Um, but the main problem that I had was that I would listen to people and, and I would think, oh, that was just a stream of noise. How am I supposed to understand that? I, I can't even pick out where the words are in that stream of noise. Um, so at first it was much easier to read. Even though I couldn't understand the words, I would see where the gaps were between the words. And then some of them were similar to English um, and I noticed immediately that listening was much harder than, than reading. Um, and that's something that I've carried forward into what I do now, because 
having that insight into yeah. how it feels to be that person that's trying to understand a foreign language is something that has inspired me to set up English Unlocked and to begin helping other people to realize how difficult it is to listen to a, a, another language and try to understand it. Yeah, it's interesting. My, my grandfather was actually Spanish and and I know some Spanish, but I have a Karen in, near Barcelona and I cannot understand <laughs> any of the, the sort of Catalan dialect. And I also uh, I moved to Germany when I was 21 and I moved to Munich in Bavaria. And again, I learned what they call Hochdeutsch. But when the Bavarian people, it's obviously we heard Byrish all the time. Again, it's such a difference. There's, and you can imagine the difficulty of people coming to the UK having to deal with those differences as well, which, again, I think we take for granted. So um, one of the things that you say is that even if a non-native speaker is fluent in English, it doesn't guarantee that they're going to be able to integrate seamlessly into a company can you tell me a bit more about why that is well as you said there are different accents and types of dialect so if somebody has moved for example relocated to England to work that can be difficult um, there's also the fact that they are perhaps now in a minority and they are listening to people who have grown up speaking English as, as their mother tongue speak with each other, and that can be very difficult. In addition, and as I'm sure you've experienced too, if you start a new job, there's always all of the jargon and the in-speak of that sector to learn, and that can be a steeper hill to climb if English isn't your first language. And the truth is that people who have grown up and they've had to learn English as a foreign language, they prefer speaking to other people who have done the same thing, even if that person comes from another country. So, a, you know, a, a Japanese business person who speaks English well will prefer to speak to somebody Dutch or Brazilian than an English or American or a Kiwi or a Canadian because those people are speaking English in a very unaware way where it, it can be difficult to find a way in. There are so many references, the, you know, the, the context that people take for granted is, is not known by that person that's learned English as a foreign language. That's really interesting, isn't it? And um, I mean, you mentioned you started English Unlocked. So again, take me back. So you, you are teaching English in Spain. Tell me about the journey to creating English Unlocked, what happened? What was the sort of light bulb? And you said you saw how difficult it was, but tell me about that journey. Well, I came back to England and found work teaching English um, to speakers of other languages. And my students came from all different countries and they had to use English to communicate with each other. Um, and I'd lived in Spain for seven years and I had been teaching English for, for seven years and I had developed a really effective way of giving classroom instructions and talking to my students. And even people who had a beginner level, I would be able to explain what I wanted them to do and they would do it. And what I noticed when I started working in FE colleges here in the UK was that my students, I would take them, for example, to the library or the canteen to show them around. And the person that worked there 
would speak to my students in a way that my students couldn't understand. And I would be listening to them speaking that way. And, and I would be thinking, there's no way they're going to understand that. <laughs> and I realized that the way that I had developed of, of speaking was a skill and that it, it seemed to me natural to do that. And it seemed it had become kind of common sense that I should speak in that way. And I noticed that other people didn't have that. They didn't see that that was common sense, how to slow down, how much to slow down by the choice of words that we're using. And so that was where the idea came from. Yeah, because it's funny, isn't it? I find the British, and I'm I'm uh, guilty of this as much as anyone, is that we just tend to slow down and raise our voice and think that people are going to understand what, 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 we're, what we're saying. So give me an example of the sort of things that people didn't understand in that context, you know, that the, you say that you took them to the library. So what, what would that librarian have said that that person just didn't, couldn't grasp? There was one time when somebody's library card wouldn't work. So I took him to the part of the college where they did all the enrollments and put everybody onto the system. And the person behind the desk looked at my student and said, I can't find you anywhere on the system who enrolled you. Like one stream of noise. <laughs> And my student just looked at me. I thought for a moment, I thought, how can I break this down? So I said to him, have you been to this office before? Yes. Did you speak to a man or a woman? Woman. What was her name? That woman. And he pointed to the woman. <laughs> so um, that's kind of like bringing in a bridging question where you yeah. totally rethink the context, people often will be blind to how much the context, how much of their context they take for granted and how the context that they're in is, is not obvious to the person they're speaking to. Plus she spoke in a, you know, she just ran all the words together in one long stream, no gaps. And oh, that's wow. not helpful either. No. And so is this what you're alluding to when you say, that it's a disadvantage to be a native English speaker. Yes, if you're an unaware native English speaker, then yes, that can work as a disadvantage, if, especially if you are working with international colleagues or if you're working with people overseas trying to sell to them or if they're your supplier or you've got an offshore team. In all of those situations, the fact that you're so very comfortable with English and you don't have to think about it and you've never really considered what's difficult about English, the, the same lack of awareness that I first had when I moved to Spain. And you speak in a, in a very unaware way, which is unnecessarily difficult for the people that you're, that you're speaking to. And it can cause them stress, incomprehension. And it can, you know, I mean, imagine if you go to a an international conference and you there you want to connect with people from China people from Portugal people from all over the world and they take one look at you and they think oh it's the lunch break I can't be bothered sitting next to that person from Birmingham I've got no idea what he says <laughs> he uses sporting metaphors that I've never heard of and he just speaks off the cuff uses expressions like off the cuff, for example. I've got no idea what that expression means. I'm going to go and speak to that nice Japanese person over there instead. And you can, you know, feel isolated. 
That's really interesting. So one of the things I, as you probably know, because I think you listen to the podcast that I often talk about on here is the crock brain um, and how we need to get the, which acts like a bouncer to passing messages up to our higher brain. So when we create talks and content, we need to be doing it, recognizing that it's going to get, it's got to get past that crock brain first. And one of the jobs that that reptile brain, that older brain that we have uh, does for us is maintains our energy and looks after our energy. So if a foreign person at that lunch, it's not even just a sort of part, part of it might be a subconscious thing where their crock brain's kicking in and thinking that is going to, I just need to, this is a break. I need to relax. I need to have someone that is going to be easy for me to communicate with rather than waste extra energy that I might need later talking to someone that is going to be hard to understand. So the same thing must apply in relation to this uh, it's not something I've thought about before, but that's really, really interesting. Absolutely. So I think if you're, if you're selling, yeah, you know, you're making a, a cold sales call and the person on the end of the phone just hears, you know, a wall of English, a stream of English. And they think, Oh God, yeah, I thought I had good English, but I can't understand this person. And they just yeah. feel so bad about themselves. And it's so energy consuming that, how can you possibly have a successful sales call if that's the impact that your pattern of speech has? Definitely. And it's interesting. They do say that if you want to become an expert, become a teacher. So you having to deconstruct the English language in order to teach it to people was the gateway for you to create your system, presumably. Yes, exactly. I can pick out parts of English that I've seen people struggle with in the classroom and I've developed an instinct for which parts of English are going to be difficult. Um, and then I've worked out, okay, what is it about that that's difficult? Oh, it's because it's a compound noun. Oh, it's because it's a homonym and build these categories of words that I recommend that people find alternatives to if they can. Excellent. So when did you start English Unlocked? What, what sort of timescale are we talking about? It was 2018. Okay, so not too long ago. What challenges or sort of attitudes did you come up against when you started the company? Did you find people who didn't take you seriously or thought you were inventing problems where they didn't exist? I think people didn't really understand what I wanted to do. It's very powerful when people attend the training and they, ha they do have an aha moment where I speak Spanish and I ask them, did you understand that? No, I'm going to do it again. Did you understand that time? Yeah, I understood. I can't even speak Spanish and I understood you. <laughs> so until I get that opportunity to kind of demonstrate what I mean, it's difficult for people to understand what a big impact it can have if they make some changes to the way that they speak. Um, and Another difficulty that I had was that I didn't have connections in the right places. And I, I come from a teaching background. So I, I didn't know all of the jargon of the corporate world or the public sector. The public sector actually ended up being the first sector to, to pick up on my training and, and use it. Um, so the breakthrough that I had was that I met somebody who works for the Health and Race Equality Forum here in Newcastle upon Tyne in the UK where I live, Vicky Harris. And 
she, I'm so grateful to Vicky because she was the first person that I spoke to explained my idea and she said yes we need that yeah that can make a big difference I'm going to put on some free courses you'll teach them I'll invite everyone I know and then they'll all be sold on it and exactly that's exactly what happened so all of my first customers came through Vicky and that opportunity to actually demonstrate what a difference it can make um, if you adapt the way that you speak it's really interesting, isn't it? Because it's almost like, you know, when you're coaching people, when you're trying to teach people, there are blind spots. People don't know what they don't know. And this is a massive cultural blind spot for us as native English speakers. And I think the other aspect to this that might be a barrier is because English is spoken so widely around the world, we probably think that we don't need to make the effort because it is spoken. But until we're aware of the things that you're bringing up that people aren't aware of, we may not think there's a problem there. So I suspect it's that's probably what you've been trying to do, which is, again, something that I often talk about, you've probably heard me talk about, which is evangelize the problem. You've got to make people aware there's a problem in the first place, and then you, they come to you for the solution, but it's getting them to be aware of that problem. I'm glad that you had that sort of opening. I mean, just talking to you, I've had some aha moments already. So who is your target audience for these courses? Is it big corporates? Is it anyone that's trying to do business internationally or working with uh, foreigners in this country? Who, who is exactly your ideal customer for this? Well, I've got different ways of helping people in all of those situations. So um, the people who work for public services or charities here in the UK, I help them to speak to people who might have very little English. Um, and we focus especially on turn-taking, allowing time and all the visual clues that you can give um, in those courses. And as I said, they were the first, my first customers. And then if I'm helping clients who come from the corporate world, international business, then I help them to work out how to speak to somebody who does have decent English. They're working in, in the English language, but don't assume that just because they can speak fluently to you, that they're going to understand absolutely everything that you come out with. Um, you know, English has got the biggest vocabulary of any language in the world. And, you know, we're still learning. My teenagers are all always telling me words that I didn't know existed because new ones are being <laughs> yeah. invented all the time as if the English language wasn't big enough already. Um, so, so yeah, if I'm helping people that work in international business, then I can help them to speak in a way that's not going to patronize their colleague because that's really important. Um, and that's a way that people can go wrong is if, you know, if they think, oh, well, they've got a foreign accent, I'd better slow right down and they slow down too much or they limit their range of vocabulary too much for that person that's not appropriate it can be insulting so I can help people to adapt their English in a kind of imperceptible way so that the person that you're speaking to doesn't notice what exactly you're doing they just think oh I like this person oh I can understand this person easier than that guy from Birmingham who I was speaking to yesterday at the conference this person yeah they're British but I understand them quite 
quite well. And that's something I hear all the time when I speak to people um, who come to English from another language is that they look at me and I can understand you. It's like they want me to explain, what are you doing? How are you doing that? <laughs> I think it's important to make the point here, just for people from Birmingham, um, that... I'm not singling uh, it, out. <laughs> <laughs> it's not impossible for you to be able to do this. I mean, it's not a lost cause. You're not saying that, are you? <laughs> not at all, not at all, no. And Birmingham popped into my head as a big city here in the UK, but the same applies to people from London, people who might not have what we call a regional accent, but mm-hmm. they've got... Um, an accent that doesn't denote which part of the UK they come from, that's still an accent. Yeah. And it, it's still difficult for people to understand you if you don't think carefully about how, you, how you're speaking. Absolutely. And now, so one of the big mistakes you've just said is that people slow down too much, limit their vocabulary too much, so that it comes across as almost patronizing and insulting. What are some of the other big mistakes? you see people make when they speak to non-native speakers? One of the worst things that you can do, and I'm sure you'll have seen this, is if you talk like this, do you want a drink? (laughs) So um, if if you speak in that way and you can see me, and it's even worse, isn't it, when you can actually see the face I'm pulling of like, you know, big eyes leaning in, I look a bit desperate. Um, so sometimes people, when they watch me doing the Spanish thing and I say, okay, it's your turn now to practice. Sometimes people will find that they speak like that. In fact, I've got a a bunch of mirrors that I use. If I'm doing face-to-face training, I've got all these little mirrors, or if I'm doing that uh, in a webinar, I'll ask people, I'll send them into a little breakout room and I'll ask them to speak to the camera as if that camera was a person who is a beginner at English and just watch yourself. You might find to your horror that you're doing the face and you're doing that voice. <laughs> <laughs> so we really go into how can you avoid, um, you know, what's going on there when people speak like that. So that's, mm. that's a, a, a mistake that people tend to make with people who have got quite low English. If, if they can feel that there is a struggle there, but another mistake that people can make is that they'll think, okay, this, this person is my colleague, they've got this job because they're, they've got good enough English to do it. I'm not going to make any adjustments because here they are in the workplace. I'm sure they understand me, it's, it's fine. And they don't check, they don't give permission for that person to, to ask questions, which is something that can really help. Yeah, and I think one of the things that I wanted to ask you around was the biggest benefits for an individual organization that come from modifying their language. I don't know if you can talk to those, but I can immediately see that there is an, a, a potential for a foreign, even though they're fluent speaker to feel isolated, embarrassed, ashamed, and all of that stuff. If they can't understand and just not wanting to even talk about, you know, to mention it, is that something you come across? Well, absolutely, because imagine if you've got a job on the strength of your English, do you really feel able in week one to stop people every two minutes and say, I'm sorry, I didn't understand that? You you might feel that that reveals you to not have the English level that they believe you to have. Mm -hmm. The first time that I became aware of how English Unlocked training can benefit 
um, organisations that care about inclusion, the inclusion of staff that they've recruited who are not first language English speakers, was when I produced a, a course for Newcastle Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust, um, which would help their staff to manage when an interpreter isn't required. So I made an e-learning course for them. And it, it, there was the Spanish thing. There were lots of tips on how, how to um, change the way that you speak. And somebody who was a Filipino nurse who had moved to Newcastle a few years previously got in touch to say that he absolutely loved the course because it would have made his life so much easier if when he'd arrived, people around him had done some training like that and had been aware of how difficult they were for him to understand. That's brilliant. I can see from a retention, uh, especially when you're going out of your way to acquire talent, especially in this world we're living in now where it's hard to come by people who can do particular jobs, you know, you need to be looking after them and, and protecting that investment, if nothing else, by, by investing in something like this. I can just, I can see the benefits. And then also there must be, have you worked with individuals where there's been any bottom line impact where they are sort of perhaps salespeople or something doing business with uh, international companies where they've seen benefits from doing this work? No, I expect to see that next. So in the corporate world, um, the first people who have been interested in my training, the ones that are most receptive are people that care about equality, diversity mm. and inclusion. And I think sales is the next logical mm. piece of the puzzle when they see what a difference it makes. The set, then the sales departments are, are going to be very interested in how this can be applied to that setting. Uh, there's something I want to do with you, and I know you're going to give me some <laughs> some tips as well. So can you share some, and we think we've covered a few things already, but can you share some quick tips that will make a difference for people today that they could perhaps think about when they're talking to people who are not native speakers? Yeah, certainly. So listening and gauging the level of the person that you're speaking to is a good start. And don't think, oh, well, they've got a foreign accent, I'd better slow down. Pay attention instead to their range of vocabulary. Are they using expressions that are part of the colloquial speech that you're used to or not? Um, and that kind of colloquial speech, idiomatic speech, is something to avoid. So idioms are phrases where if you translate them literally, they don't make sense. So, for example, pie in the sky. Or um, off, off the cuff that you said the other the minute, yeah. yeah. So this is something that if you were to translate it word for word, then the other person wouldn't have any idea. Um, shall I give you an example from Spanish? Yeah, that'd be good. I, I play football with some Spanish uh, ladies and they, well, I, we were trying to translate some swear words. We don't want to do that one here. Just in case, <laughs> give me some, some family friendly Spanish stuff. <laughs> well, so uh, an example of an idiom in Spanish is um, hacer la vista gorda, which literally translates as to give the wide glance. So imagine if I was to say, oh, she... Um, she saw her granddaughter take a fifth biscuit from the biscuit tin and she gave the wide glance. Would you like to guess what give the wide glance means? 
is it uh i gave her a look i gave her a sort of a a warning look or something like that like a hard stare yeah no it means i turned a blind eye ah the wide glances you know i'm i'm not really seeing that and the equivalent expression in english is to turn a blind eye so maybe if we said to turn a blind eye, then the Spanish person listening might think, turn blind eye. Okay, what does that, what can that mean? Yeah. And maybe they'll work it out and maybe not, but it's not obvious, is it? You, it no. requires a lot of thought and think how much time's being wasted. Yeah, and what they've missed while they're stuck there trying to work that out. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Cool. Exactly. Okay, so we've got assess their... Um, level of proficiency, assess their vocabulary, don't use idioms. What else have you got? If we're focusing on international settings and international business, because I think that's where most of your listeners are, then think about what you can do to give permission to your conversation partner that it's fine to interrupt you. So you could say, oh, I know I'm difficult to understand sometimes. Um, Or you could say, Oh, I always say um, pie in the sky, but maybe that's an expression you don't know. Do you know what pie in the sky means? And kind of owning up to your quirks and your idiolect. So idiolect is, I'm going to explain idiolect because um, your listeners may not know this word. I expect you know what a dialect is. It's yeah. a regional um, language variation. An idiolect is a personal language variation. So which are the phrases that you personally tend to use? So in our family, we often say, oh, was that a nice meal? Well, suboptimal. We use the word suboptimal (laughs) in our family, but it's not used everywhere, is it? It's part of my idiolect. And I encourage people to become aware of which are your personal favourite Um, expressions, idioms. It's not just about idioms. There are also phrasal verbs, acronyms, jargon, dialect words. There are so many other parts of English that can be a little bit difficult to understand and trying to work out which ones are are your favourites. Find find replacements. I was just sitting here thinking about how I sign off every podcast, uh, telling people to go and grab their life by the nuts and get cracking, which... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> some very bemused people in the hundred whatever 80 countries that are like haven't got a clue what that means i shall try i'm going to do it and at the end of this episode i shall try an, an easier to understand version <laughs> along with that one yeah it's really got two different idioms um stuck together there haven't you to grab your life by the nuts um if you were going to make that easy to explain you're going to have to use Possibly vulgar language that you don't want. Cojon, yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, it's in Spanish. <laughs> and then to get cracking, that not that a strange expression? Like, what does it... It means to get, get started immediately. Yeah. Don't yeah. delay, just do yeah. it. Um, but crack, pff, where did that there come from go. to get cracking? I've no idea. I think it must be just uh, maybe it's a colloquialism or an idiom. I don't know, but... Uh, it's I, interesting. I understand it? it perfectly. I'm sure the people that grew, grew up with English as a mother tongue will all understand that, won't they? Yeah. It's just your listeners who don't have English as a mother tongue who yeah. might be confused. 
Interesting. Wow, that's so cool. And I, I did have a question about whether they all these tips apply equally online, but I would imagine they do because it's language. And certainly on Zoom, you can see people. So like you said, you can see if you're putting those silly faces, yeah. those patronizing baby faces. Yeah, you can see yourself, which can be helpful, but you, you're not, it's not as easy to pick up on subtle signs that somebody doesn't understand when you're on Zoom. Mm. So that can be more difficult. Um, In terms of body, the full body language. Yeah. Often when we communicate online, we communicate in writing. That's a good place to start the process of looking again at your language use and thinking, oh, is that an idiom? Oh, is that a phrasal mm. verb? How can I replace it? Because doing that when you're speaking is really difficult, isn't it? Eliminating them from your speech, but eliminating them from your emails is a good place to start. So when you say phrasal verb, can I just clarify what you mean by that? So a phrasal verb is a verb where the meaning is changed by one or two extra words, usually prepositions. So think about run. We all know what run means. Mm -hmm. And then think about run out of. Right. Has it got anything to do with running? No. Nothing to do with running. Or give and give up. Right. They're completely different meanings. And when I was learning Spanish I was I felt very inconvenienced to learn that well I can't just learn look and then learn after and into and for and then use those to change the meaning of look I have to learn a new verb every time and that's how it works in other languages most other languages don't have phrasal verbs oh I see so that's quite a unique it's unique to Germanic languages mostly it's the Germanic languages which have phrasal verbs. Gosh, interesting. Okay, so what I wanted to do, I want to do your Spanish thing because we do, we have got video which would be useful to put out potentially, but I think we may still be able to get a sense of it even just through the audio. So I want to do that first and then I want to ask you about stories and humour after that. I'd like to have a go at your Spanish thing so I want to see, see what that's like. Okay, well, the, the full length one is too long for this, but what we can do is I'll just say one sentence yeah, and I'll say it a few times and see if eventually you get it. Okay. So how about if we do it four times? Okay. And don't, te don't tell me what you think I'm saying until I get to the end, until I've said okay. it four times. A mí me gusta el té, pero el café no. A mí me gusta... El té, pero el café, no. Now I'm going to do it with facial expressions for you. Unfortunately, the listeners won't benefit from this, but you will. A mí me gusta el té, pero el café, no. And now finally, I'm going to reveal the context. So the context is that you and I are having a chat in Spanish about our likes and dislikes. A mí me gusta el té, pero el café, no. What do you think I said, Sarah? I have a slight advantage here because I, I didn't understand it the first time you said it. I kind of got it the second time, but absolutely got confirmed. Spanish. Yeah, because I speak some Spanish. So you say, I like tea, but... 
coffee, no. I, I like tea, but I don't like coffee. So I translated it literally because I understand some of the words, but it was a game changer when you started to introduce the facial expressions and the actions. It made it really easily understood. So, yeah. But I didn't, the first time you said it, it was just too fast for me to even pick it up. I was like, yeah. what did I understood one or two words, but I didn't. The second time you slowed it down a little, I got it. But with the rest of it, it's, uh, yeah, I can see that. That's really, that's really cool. Excellent. Okay. So let's talk about whether it's still possible to use metaphors, analogies, stories, and humor, as is one of the big things that I talk about on this show and make them accessible to non-native speakers. What do you think? And I know you put a post on LinkedIn about this and got a phenomenal response. Everyone seemed to have an opinion on this. But where, where did you get to? What's, what's your thoughts on this? Um, so should we start with analogies and metaphors? Yeah. Um, so it's absolutely possible to use metaphors in a way that's understood. Um, a couple of things to think about are have you signposted that it's a metaphor? Um, have you given some context? Um, and also, will the context of that metaphor be understood by your listener? So, for example, you might be working with a colleague, an international colleague, and you might say, oh, I love our team leader. She really cares about us, doesn't she? She's like a mother hen. So it's obvious what you mean. You, it, they'll understand you're not actually saying she's a hen. <laughs> <laughs> and you're not insulting her, you, they'll understand, oh, okay, that must be an English phrase where they call people mother hens. Whereas if you were to say, I don't know what we're sat here for, we're like sitting ducks, without any context and without indicating that that is a metaphor or an expression, then that's probably not going to be understood. And there were you wanted to think about metaphors, and humor. Yeah, stories as well. Stories. Yeah. So stories are a really effective way of communicating. And I think the same is true when you're speaking to people who haven't grown up speaking English, um, because they are a good replacement for abstract things. If you're trying to make an abstract point or explain a theory, if you can replace that with a story that has a beginning, a middle and end, then it's much more um, accessible for for that audience cool so it works so it's a good thing to and obviously i talk about stories all the time on here but it, it also has the, it, it's helpful to to non-native speakers as well to get the message to to make it more sticky and get it to land that's brilliant okay and what about humor yeah there's a lot to say about humor <laughs> so i learned the hard way when i moved to spain and um started to be able to speak in spanish um, and started making the same jokes that got great results in English. <laughs> but it was uh, not a safe place to use sarcasm. So sarcasm, I'm deeply sarcastic, Sarah. <laughs> and Good. even worse, I've got one of those faces where you can't tell if I'm joking or not. And that's um, a type of humour that works well here in the UK, if everybody understands that we often say the opposite of what we mean. And some people do that with a straight face for to, to maximize the impact of the humor. You know, I'm not going to laugh, but I want you to laugh. I want you to realize it's a joke. Yeah. Those things do not work in Spain. 
I would say things like, and this isn't even very funny, but it's an example of sarcasm. Like, oh, nice day, isn't it? And they would say, no, actually, it's uh, it's raining. <laughs> it's like, no, I was, oh, it's okay. It was sarcasm. Sorry. I realized that sarcasm and deadpan humor don't work in Spain. Nobody else uses them, so nobody's expecting them. So if really? you do use sarcasm, people will take you literally. Um, and as the, res the response to my LinkedIn post demonstrated, and maybe you'd like to link to that in the, in the show notes, because yeah. wow, the, the, the comments that it got from people all over the world is, yeah, so sarcasm is, is not safe to use in, in many other countries. Would you put irony in the same box as sarcasm? Yes. Okay. I know they're not exactly the same thing. But, they're similar. But yeah, I think be careful about that kind of humour. And something else that you should be careful of is puns. Got you should always be careful me. of puns, to be fair. <laughs> well, yeah, most puns are bad, aren't they? <laughs> so a pun is a joke that relies on a double meaning, doesn't it? A word with a yeah. double meaning or a phrase with a double meaning. But some puns are funny. And somebody on LinkedIn sent me a video of uh, an Australian news presenter interviewing the Dalai Lama. And he said to the Dalai Lama a joke, which I did find funny, but the Dalai Lama did not understand it. He said, the Dalai Lama goes into a pizza place and says, can you make me one with everything? <laughs> I like that one. It's a great joke, isn't it? <laughs> Well, the Dalai Lama did not understand and the translators <laughs> were laughing and the Dalai Lama had to just look mystified and eventually starts to laugh because the news presenter Everyone else is looks so embarrassed <laughs> and he's laughing himself. Um, so jokes that rely on um, a double meaning are also not a good idea to use in an international setting. So especially, I think, if you, I'm sure you've got listeners who give uh, give talks in an international setting. So if you've got a talk that works well um, for a, a British audience or the, the audience back home, and you've got all these jokes that always get a great response, you can't assume that those jokes are going to work um, with, with a, an audience abroad. And as well as ruling out irony, deadpan humour and puns, think about the culture of the person that you're speaking to. So jokes often usually rely on a mutual understanding of culture, and then you subvert that and say something unexpected. Mm. But think about it, is the culture going to be understood by your audience? Do they, sh do they share those same assumptions? And if they don't, then it it's not a good idea to use that joke. Um, and if you can, run it past Yes, That's definitely. Over, by the way, but practice your joke <laughs> on somebody who is from that culture and ask them, does that work for you? Test your material. I think that's always a good, as, as I put on, on my comment on your post, I think uh, humour is fantastic for, for lots of things, but you've got to, I always suggest in a business context, test it out because even in a, you know, with native speakers, you have to be careful using humor in business. So it's always good to test your material. I have a question for you. So when I did talk in Sweden and Sweden has some cultural stuff that you need to pay attention to, but I made a joke about um, Donald Trump's hair 
and it was a sort of gag at the end of a, a story. And but I was able to put a slide up which showed and and had sort of his hair and a parrot and so various things which I think if you can put the joke in context with a visual that possibly might help it work. But again, yeah. I think testing it out. Absolutely. So there are two things there. First of all, you're punching up, you're not punching down. Yeah. You're not, it's not self-deprecation, which works in some cultures, is, is understood as a joke in some cultures. And in, in other cultures, if you use self-deprecating humor, people mm. will think, oh, she just doesn't like herself. She just needs me to reassure her. She, mm. They don't recognize that as a joke. So you were punching up when you were making a joke at the expense mm. of, you know, a world leader. And you used a picture. And there's a reason why Mr. Bean is our most popular com comedy ex export. Yeah. <laughs> because that requires no translation, visual mm. humor. So um, when I moved to Spain at first, I was this dreadful, sarcastic woman that people probably thought was just strange, weird. And then by, by after a few years, I had become very good at using visual humor my boyfriend in Spain called me faces Shelley <laughs> <laughs> because I like making people laugh and that's all that I had available to me really was visual gags so I I gave in and started using visual gags made a full transition from being deadpan to yeah using the full Excellent. potential of visual humor brilliant and I just I just want to sort of just explain one point that Shelley made there so again people may not understand uh, this concept so when you're doing comedy in order for a joke to work whatever joke there has to be a victim that victim could be a social norm putting things like putting the bins out uh, it could be a person it could be a very a variety of things but you've always got to um, have the victim being uh, a higher status than you. So you have to be seen to be punching up. So making the victim someone who is a world leader or something that's safe. We stay away from religion and politics most of the time as well. Um, but this is, this is the sort of secret to making it acceptable to people is, is not picking on people who may be perceived as worse off than you or lower status than you. I hope I've explained that correctly and that people get that so it's you just have to be very very careful and that's another reason to test your material out I think yeah um, and I think something else is to give people a clear indication that it is a joke yes so this is why deadpan humor doesn't work deadpan is my face is not laughing there's not even a twinkle in my eye so um, you could say something that is funny but the person listening to you this is what Erin Mayer um, the author of the culture map commented on on that post is she said I'm an American and in my experience speaking to British people you'll make a joke and I'm maybe I'm 90% sure that it's a joke maybe I even find it funny but I don't feel confident enough that it's a joke that I'll actually be able to laugh so why not signal to us with a wink or a nudge yes. or something yes. in the body language that yes you're joking that was a joke yeah, I think that's an important point to make. And, and it is, again, in, in business, 
those sorts of things. If you go to a comedy club, that's fine. Do you like that's a different ball game? But especially in business, I think doing a cock of the eyebrow or a wink or something or you know a bit of a grin um, just to give give a signal that it's it's fine. This isn't a comedy uh, comedy lesson, but just like comics signal a joke is a punchline is coming, even if they're deadpan by the timing. And obviously that, but that takes a while to sort of develop. So just give people uh, uh, an idea, heads up that heads up. There's another. Give people uh, a signal that a signpost that uh, that it's coming. Brilliant. Okay. Now, I don't. We may have covered this already, but. Um, have you got any tips for me? You said that uh, I, there were some things perhaps that you picked up that I could improve on to make my show more accessible. We've covered it. I wanted to point out all the things that you're doing well because you've got an, a really international audience. Yes. And I'm sure that's for a reason. When I looked at your reviews, there are people writing in the review, oh, I love listening to Sarah because I can understand her and she's really interesting. That There is a reason for that, I'm sure. And I think... The way that you, the way that you begin your each episode, is especially um, easy to understand for people who have learned English as a foreign language, because you're reading from a script, I think, uh, but you're you're not um, you're not speeding up. That's a mistake that people often make when they're reading from a script. Your delivery is nice and measured you've got a smile in your voice. So as you were talking about the lizard brain, uh, you're opening every episode with a really happy sounding introduction that's well-paced and you've got a smile in your voice. So from the beginning, your listener has relaxed and they've already decided to trust you and to put the effort in to continue to listen to you. And the rise and fall of your voice as well is very friendly and that can help to to give meaning to what you're saying as well because you've you have quite a sing-song quality to your voice especially when you're giving that introduction to, cool. the, to the episode and then later in the episode you're speaking to usually you're speaking to a fellow mother tongue English speaker so of course you speak in a way that is normal for that listener. You're not addressing a crowd of Chinese business people. Um, if you were, I would suggest to think carefully about idioms and phrasal verbs um, and the things that we've spoken about. And then in, in the training, we look at other things as well that, that can help. Um, so yeah, that, it, that was the one thing that I was going to say is that you, of course you are using idioms because they're part of our speech. And yeah. That's why it's so effortful and difficult to change the way that you speak for that audience is because you do have to just completely change your awareness of yeah. things that you're saying. Well, I've picked up a lot today and I will bear it in mind, you know, just in terms of if there's a choice. Um, it's It's been really helpful to to me because I know I'm speaking to an international audience to, to try and incorporate some of these things into my uh, language when I'm doing the shows, but that's really helpful. Thank you. Now, I am going to come back to where people can find out more about you. And I know that you've got something special for a speaking club um, audience uh, as well to offer. But first of all, I want to ask you some standard questions if you've got time. Yeah. 
Brilliant. Okay. So, you know, you probably know what's coming. Um, this is the speaking club. So the first question is, what's the best thing that speaking has done for you? So most of my speaking for the first couple of decades of my working life was speaking to a classroom of English learners. And that gave me a couple of things. It, it gave me um, a sense of confidence because something else I should say about humour is that, yes, there are lots of types of humour that don't work, but um, uh, I found that an international audience like that is very quick to laugh. If you do make a joke that they understand, <laughs> the appreciation and the laughter that you get is um, very ready, and that's a nice, a nice thing. And I think the reason for that is that people who are learning English are just so pleased with themselves that they've understood a joke yeah, in a foreign yeah. language that they, you know, they, they laugh even more than it perhaps it deserves. Um, and I also developed an instinct in all of those years of English teaching because you can stand at the front of the class and explain what you want people to do. And then you can go around and look at their books and realize they're doing it all wrong. So that's how I developed a strong instinct for if people really were understanding me. Um, and all of that feedback that I've had over the years has helped me to develop an instinct for which parts of my language were difficult. Yeah, and I, that skill of being able to read an audience uh, must must come from that as well. So those little signals that people are getting off, giving off, even though they're, you know, it's a different context, those would probably still translate into when you're talking to an audience, those, some of those signals are going to be exactly the same. I'd imagine in terms yeah, of whether absolutely. they're engaged or not understanding or not on the same page. Oh, there's another one <laughs> <laughs> on the same page. That one might translate that, that you're, you're at the same level of understanding. Good. Okay. Now, have you had an, a bad speaking gig or is there something is there a time when you've spoken that you thought oh my goodness I just want to forget about that well I haven't had a moment where it felt like it had been a total disaster but I must admit that when I first switched from doing face-to-face -face, um, training sessions to doing zoom webinars that was painful really <laughs> painful I felt so exposed I felt like there was no respite for two hours people were watching me and I had to have every slide perfect every transition between every slide I had to have rehearsed and planned um, absolutely everything I said because eyes were on me at every moment and I also had to be fiddling with my mouse at the same time and you know making things happen um, that they didn't know were about to happen it was like learning to drive a car and I couldn't enjoy that. I, I normally enjoy speaking to groups, even when it's nerve wracking. I, I find it exciting, but I didn't enjoy that at first. It took me some getting used to. That's really, it's really interesting, actually, because something came up last week with a, in, in the Speaking Club Live membership that I have. And I had one lady who finds Zoom so hard, like it's a real invasion of her personal space. And it's interesting that you've just said the same thing because I guess it's it feels like there's almost two camps of people coming up. People that feel that Zoom is a protection, like you're you're not in the room with people. So so in some way, 
there's distance and there's another group of people that feel that it is more invasive than being in the room with people. It's, it's really interesting that you, you felt that way too, like you were always on show, that you always had to be more attentive, more attentive even than, than live. It's really interesting. I have to think about that point um, a bit more. Okay, cool. Thanks for sharing that. Now, next question. What's the one book that you've read that's had the most impact on your life and why? Well, there's a book that I read when I was in my 20s uh, called The Enneagram by Helen Palmer. And The Enneagram's now all over the internet, if anybody's interested to look it up. But I had never heard of it until I read this book. And it's, uh, it's a way of understanding how other people think. Um, it's a system of thought where there are nine different types of attention that people have nine different personality types almost and they're all very different from each other and by identifying mine and understanding where people were coming from when they had the other types it really helped me to kind of understand where other people were coming from which is a big part really of of what I do like understanding alternative perspectives to my own gosh I've not heard of that is it so it's it's almost like is it similar to sort of Maya Briggs and DISC, that sort of psychometric profiling, or is it different to that? Um, it's probably loved by the same people, but it comes from a very different place. It comes from the Sufi religion. Um, okay. So it's very ancient. And, wow. Um, it's great for anybody who likes understanding what makes people tick. Um, and it's great for helping you to not take things personally when people are very, have unexpected reactions to you or if you have conflict with people, it's, it's great for understanding the people in your life. Oh, I shall check it out. The Enneagram, spelled E-N-I-O-G-R-A-M? No, spelled E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M. Enneagram. Oh, okay, cool. I'll check that out. I've not heard of that. So, uh, I like to find new things out. That's brilliant. Okay, um, next question what's the best bit of business advice you've had and why I think for me it really helped me when people told me a couple of years into me developing my business which was covid times too oh yeah um that it's absolutely normal for it to take three years for a business to get started um now I developed training in a skill that I couldn't find anybody else giving training on so you know I had this really useful thing that I think everybody needs and I'm one of the only people doing it I thought that would be an easy sell <laughs> and it it's it hasn't been an easy sell it took you know it, it took a while as we've spoken about to find the right audience and find people that were receptive and find the right words to use to speak about it mm. um, and to make all of the connections so it was really helpful to, to hear that from people that, look, you can't even expect your business to be seriously on it, on its feet until you've spent three years setting it up. Yeah, it's really interesting because it, in a sense, when it's, it's counterintuitive, it's really good to find a market that is got a lot of competition in because it tells you then that there are people that are buying that, but you have to be careful you don't go for things like fidget spinners. But there are things like like you've encountered where you have to create your own market because it is so new. 
Um, and then it is really just banging the drum about the problem until people become aware of that problem, like, like you've been doing. So, and hopefully today will help people see that there is a, a problem to be solved here. There is a bottom line benefit on this type of work and type of investment in language development that uh, that will be really useful so I'm glad you came on the show to share that I must say though that I'm not the only person that's doing this now when I first started I couldn't find anybody else doing it but there are other people doing it some of them were just not easy for me to find and some of them have set up after after I have and that we are still very small in number but mm. um, I'm in contact with some of the other people that are doing the same thing and I think it's having a moment I just yeah. I, I met somebody right here in Newcastle who to my astonishment tried to do the same thing 15 years before wow and didn't get anywhere and I think it's now an idea that's having its moment I think the pandemic may well have helped that and the the zoom stuff may well have helped because I don't know I'm just making an assumption here because that you haven't got the full picture in terms of body language and stuff that you can draw on sometimes that might help, but you know, it, and the world is getting, uh, we're much closer to each other than we ever were in terms of, uh, of it being an international market. So yeah, it's, uh, well, I'm, gl I'm glad that uh, the time's right for you. Okay. Last question then, uh, if you could have any mentor and they can be alive or dead, fictional or non-fictional, who would you choose and why? Has anybody ever said Dolly Parton? Actually, <laughs> yes, one person just very recently. So, yeah, Dolly Parton, I mean, what an amazing woman. Like, she came from terrible poverty. She grew up with nothing. She's now a multimillionaire. And she's unapologetically ambitious, but she gets away with it because she laughs at herself she she sends herself up um, and she's kept her integrity as well. You know, she's I love it that she's looked after the people in her family and in her region. You know, she set up an entire amusement park called Dolly Land, <laughs> which when I first heard about it, I thought oh, that's pure egotism. But I don't think it is her ego. She's looking after the people in that region where there was absolutely nothing, no employment, no prosperity. And she's bringing all of that to her community. Nobody has a bad word to say against her. She's well-liked. I think she, she cares about people. And look how successful she's been. So I think yeah, we could all learn a lot from Dolly Parton. I think you're right. I think that the, the ambition is almost countered by this caring. You, you, you feel like she is authentic and genuine and a nice person. Um, and and ambitious too, and those things aren't mutually exclusive. And often it appears that they are. And in her, she's a great example of. Yeah, I think she's a great choice. So that's brilliant. Thank you for sharing all of those things, and thank you for sharing your mission and the insight that you've given us today in how we can use language better to break down barriers, make people feel included get more business and all of that good stuff. So if people want to find out more about you, where is the best place for them to go? I'm on LinkedIn. I'm active on LinkedIn and I love connecting with new people. I do have profiles on Facebook and Twitter, mm -hmm. but I'm not very active on those platforms. So LinkedIn is the best place to, to go. There's the English Unlocked website 
there are some free resources there as well as you know everything you need to contact me or find out more about the services that we provide um, and I run events on Eventbrite and I've got one of those coming up which I have in mind for your listeners. Mm -hmm. Tell me a bit more about that and how they can get access to that. Well, we could link to that in, in the show notes. Cool. Um, it's a one-hour uh, webinar in which you'll learn more about how you can modify the way that you speak if you were working in international business. Um, so this is going to be how can you develop that way of speaking where the person that you're speaking to doesn't realize that you're making a special effort. They don't see what you're doing differently. All they know is that they like talking to you. You're an easier person to speak to than a lot of the other British, American, Australian people that they've met. Excellent. So you're going to have an advantage and an edge that other people don't have. It'll be like a superpower like you've got, uh, Shelley. <laughs> Excellent. So we will put a link to that in the show notes. And is there anything else that you think you need to say in order to call this conversation complete? Well, I haven't mentioned that that will be discounted for your listeners. There'll be an Brilliant. offer code. There you in go. The show notes. Archer. It's got the word Archer in it, Sarah, because I thought of you. Excellent. We can link to that in the in the, in the show notes. Um, and yeah, I, I wanted to say thank you so much for inviting me on and being such a such a great host. You're welcome. It's been lovely having you, and I'm sure that you've uh, given people a few light bulb moments along the way in this in this episode. So thank you very much, and good luck with it all. Thank you. I hope you found that as interesting as I did. Before I met Shelley, this wasn't on my radar at all as the big issue that it is. And I know when joining a new company, there is always that really intimidating period when you don't know all the acronyms. It's all gobbledygook to you. But layer on top of that, having to tackle accents, colloquialisms and all of that, and it must make it super challenging for non-native speakers. I picked up some great tips there and I'm going to try my best going forward to implement them when I'm speaking. And do check out the workshop that Shelley is doing on this and don't forget to use the code ARCHER50 to get a discount. All the details for that are in the show notes. And as usual, if what Shelley talked about resonated with you, do go and say hi to her. You'll probably find her hanging out on LinkedIn and let her know. She would love that. Okay. That's me done for this week. Do check out saraharcher.co.uk to get some more support with your speaking. And if you think you need a signature talk to help you grow your audience and income, then book in for a free one-to-one -one with me and we can have a chat about that. And as ever, if you are a regular listener and you get value from the show, would you help me out by taking a couple of minutes to leave an honest rating or review over at ratethispodcast.com slash TSC. Right, thanks for joining me. I'll be back next week to give you more speaking and marketing aha tools, tips and inspiration. But in the meantime, don't sit around waiting for life to happen to you. Go out and make it happen for you. Aha, you like this Shelley to see what I did there? In other words, don't forget to go out, grab your life by the nuts and get cracking. Bye-bye.
Getting to practice your speaking in front of an audience is a crucial part of testing your message and developing your skills and experience as a speaker. Yet opportunities to do this in the right environment can be hard to find. Add in the chance to get expert feedback and coaching on your content structure and delivery and the opportunities are even fewer. But that's what you'll get as a member of the Speaking Club Live. Each week, we'll be focusing on a different aspect of business speaking, from pitching to presenting to videos and lives. There'll be hot speak slots and you'll get the chance to practice sharing your message, your storytelling, your humor, and all the different aspects of speaking in front of me and other members. Then you'll get feedback and coaching from me and your peers so that you're moving forward on your speaking journey with accountability and support. If you'd like to find out more about how you can become a member of the Speaking Club Live so that you can build your confidence, improve your delivery and become a better speaker, then go to saraharcher.co.uk slash club now.